tonight we're going to hear a message. Turn to Mark chapter 9, verses 43 to 50, and let's pray. Father, once again, Lord, we just ask you'll give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying today, Lord, and we really need to hear what you're saying to us, Lord, and trust you'll anoint me to give me the words to say in the right way, and all of us will be able to hear, and that's what we pray in Jesus' name. All right, so we begin reading here in verse 43, and it says, If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dies not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It's better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dies not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, wherewith will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. So, you know, if I took a survey tonight and asked everybody, what is your favorite portion of Scripture? I doubt if it would be this one. You know, nobody's going to say, yeah, you know, that one about getting your hand cut off and your foot cut off. That's my favorite. I really like it. You know, really inspirational. Well, it might not be my favorite. Maybe it's my second favorite compared to John 3.16, and I'd be like, right. It's probably not. It may not be our favorite portion of Scripture. It may not be what you're going to hear at most seminars, but it is probably one of the most important sections that we're going to read. So he is telling us here, the Lord Jesus Christ, that eternal life and enjoying the kingdom of God is so crucial to our purpose as God's children, that we need to do everything necessary to make sure that we don't fall short. Because, as he's making it clear, the alternative is horrifying, literally horrifying, in an existence that cannot be altered. It is that serious. So he's saying, whatever you have to do, cutting off your hand, cutting off your foot, gouging out your eye, you do not... In the end, want to end up in outer darkness, looking in, realizing what you could have had, but you weren't willing to pay the price and you don't have. Because it says this, there will be weeping, Jesus said at the end, weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see. So there are going to be people in outer darkness seeing the light, people enjoying the light. He says, when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves cast out. I can't imagine a worse way to go into eternity. You are in outer darkness. You could have been with them in the light, and you're not. You've been cast out. I mean, that's terrible. It really is, and it's sobering. So, you know, hearing this chopping off the hand and all that, that's kind of graphic terms, isn't it? And in Saudi Arabia, up to this current day, they have a place. It's called Dira Square or Justice Square or Chop Chop Square. That's what it's called. And the way it works is every Friday, right before they come into their Sabbath, 
So they have Friday evening prayers, and when they're done with their Friday evening prayers, they clear out this large area, and they bring people in there for public punishment. And it's everything from flogging to beheadings. Now, the way I understand it, they haven't done a beheading in about a year or so publicly. I think they still go on, though. So the way that works is first-time offenders, if you've just committed a minor crime like drunk in public or you've stolen some fruit, they'll flog you. And sometimes they'll give these people like 300 and some lashes, and they don't do them all at once, so they'll do so many at a time, put them in jail, bring them back out later on when they recover from that. And this can go on for years. I mean, it's terrible, but that's what will happen. But the more serious offenses are dealt with more harshly. So if you've been caught stealing multiple times, they will literally do what Jesus is saying right here. They cut off your right hand. They will take out your eyeball if you've hurt somebody else's eye. And on and on and on. And so reporters that have witnessed those things, they're like, that is the most barbaric thing that I have ever seen in my life. And nobody here in America would put up with it, right? Because that seems like to us, I mean, that's an extreme way to deal with a crime. Jesus didn't think so, though, did he? I mean, he brought it up, at least not in a spiritual sense. So whether you realize it or not, three times in the gospel, Jesus recommends cutting off your hand, cutting off your foot, gouging out your eyes. We got it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 when he says, if lust is your problem, you're better off to take your eye out. Matthew 18, he goes on and says the same thing. Cut off your hand, cut off your foot, whatever you need to do to keep you from stumbling, from not making it in. And then we have this occasion here in Mark 9. And you think about it, who is the one saying that? I mean, Jesus, the Lord and Savior that you're trusting in to get you into heaven, the one that speaks about love, and has shown mercy and compassion, and yet he speaks of hell more than anybody else in the Bible. And that's the one talking about this now. So you say, well, he didn't mean for us to take that literally. That's what we've been taught. But some have. There have been people along the way. Greg knew somebody that literally tried to cut off his hand and didn't quite make it that far. But there literally have been saints all through the centuries that have taken that literally and dismembered themselves so that they would not sin against the Lord. I mean, some fairly famous theologians in the past have done that. So he's not asking us, is he? I don't think he is. I don't think he's asking us to mutilate ourselves, but he's making a pretty graphic point, isn't he? That the kingdom of God is of such supreme value that the things we hold dear to ourselves and put a high value on, our hands, our feet, and our eyes, he's saying that is nothing in comparison to what the value of the kingdom of God is, and we should be willing to cut them off. Not literally cut them off, but cast them away. Anything that comes between us and making it in, he's saying you need to be ruthless with it and get rid of it. And what does that represent? What is that representing? Repentance, isn't it? Turning from and forsaking sin once and for all. That's what he's talking about there. So a lot of people, they think repentance is a one-time thing that's done at an altar when they say a prayer. But repentance is a lifetime event for all of us. It really is, because it never stops. So ask Job. Job was a righteous man. And through that trial he went through, God showed him his heart. And he says, wait a minute, there's a cleaning up that still needs to take place, even though you are an upright man with all you know. But I'm showing you something here. And Job, you've got to deal with it. And he did, didn't he? says he repented in sackcloth and ashes. 
So let me say, isn't there something that God has dealt with you recently in your life that you need to deal with? He has me. Constantly does that. Puts you in situations and things come up. You're like, I didn't realize I needed to deal with that like I do. But I do. And that's what God does to us. So he says this, every branch in me, John 15, that bears not fruit, it says he takes away. But every branch that bears fruit, what does he do? He purges it that it may bring forth more fruit. And so what's purging mean? It's pruning, cutting away. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying whatever causes you to sin, prune it, cut it off, get rid of it. Because he's saying it's this serious. And here's where I'm like, all I can tell you is what he says. And if people don't take it seriously because we've heard these kind of messages before, I can't help that. And that includes with myself. But he's saying it's this serious. It's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of heaven and hell is what he's saying. So what I want to do is look at this passage that we're looking at here, verses 43 to 50, under three headings. Where, how, and why. So where does we deal with sin? Where does he want us to deal with sin? How is that sin going to be dealt with? And why do we need to deal with sin? And so the first thing is where to deal with sin. So verse 42 that we looked at last time we talked about Mark is talking about dealing with sin outside of ourselves. Things that are external to us, causing other people to sin. But here in verses 43 to 50, Jesus is talking about things that are internal to us. He's talking about our sins, isn't he? Not about what we may do to someone else. He's talking about our sins. My hand, your hand, my foot, your foot, my eye, your eye. That's what he's saying. He's saying, take a look at yourself. Take a serious look at yourself. Look at your own lives, not the lives of others. He's saying, wait, stop, and think. It's a warning that he's given us here. Are you serious, he's saying, about your sins? The things I'm dealing with you. Do you take what you're doing seriously? Do you see where these sins are taking you? What they're doing to you? Where they're leading you to? So I heard this illustration you know, you go in to see a doctor, and the doctor examines you, and he's got this real concerned look on his face, and he tells you, he says, you know, there is something seriously wrong with you. And he tells you that, you're in there, and then he goes out, and he looks out the window and starts saying, you know, I'll talk about that. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? I mean, the leaves are coming on the trees, and the flowers, the daffodils are blooming, and I'm going to go golfing in an hour. So you'd be like, wait a minute. No, no, no. <laughs> Please, tell me what's wrong with me. He said, there's something seriously wrong with me. Would you just please tell me what's wrong with me and what I have to do about it? Isn't that the way you would be? It's like, look, I'm taking this seriously, what you're saying. And that's what we have going on here. That's what Jesus is doing. Think about it. He's talking to his hand-picked disciples. He's saying, look, you guys have got things in yourself. We've got to remember the whole context of this section. He's been walking with them. He said, don't you remember walking along the way? And what were you all doing? You were arguing about who is going to be the greatest. And that means a great deal to you, your pride of place, who you are in the community. And that's a lot of big deal to a lot of people, who you are, what people think about you. And he says, hey, if you want to make it in the kingdom, those problems, those issues you have there, you need to deal with it. You need to cut it off and cut it out of your life. That's what he's talking about. That's the context here. Because that pride was something really dear to them. 
You need to be willing to give that up, he's saying. That's what he's telling them. So our problem is where? It's within us, isn't it? It's not necessarily external. It hadn't been that long ago. We looked at Mark 7, and Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for being hypocrites. He says, you all think everything's got to be this external religion. But inside, you guys are a mess. You think eating with clean hands or just cutting one off and you got no hands, you say, that somehow makes you clean. He's like, that's not how it works. It's what's in your heart is the problem. Because he said, for from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness. We know what that word means now. An evil eye blasphemy, pride, foolishness. He says all these evil things come from within and defile the man. So where do we deal with sin? Is cutting off our hands, gouging out our eye, cutting off our foot going to free us from sin? So sin we know is what? It's a matter of the heart. and has to be dealt with there, doesn't it? But that brings me to the second point. How is that sin going to be dealt with? How do we deal with sin in our lives? So it resides in the heart, but it's in our heart, but how's it manifested? It's manifested in our body, isn't it? It doesn't just stay in our heart. It comes out, and it manifests in a lot of different ways. So if you would put something there in Mark and turn over to Romans chapter 6, and that's what Paul's telling us here. Romans chapter 6, verses 11 to 13 Paul says, likewise, he says, reckon, count yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, when you do that, verse 12, he says, let not sin therefore, because of that, you're alive unto God. He says, don't let sin therefore reign where? In your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. And then he goes on in verse 13, he says, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So what's in our heart is going to be manifested, he's saying there, in our physical bodies because our physical bodies become tools. And that word there for instruments, everywhere else it's translated as a weapon He's saying, so you can make your body, what you do with your body, how you conduct your, it can be either a weapon for the devil, a tool for the devil, or a tool for God. It can be an instrument of unrighteousness and sin, or for righteousness and holiness. And so the engines of our heart, that's what the motives, the intents, the desires, that's the engines of our heart, and that's what drives what we do with our bodies. And he's saying, hey, if you've been raised to newness of life through the Lord Jesus Christ, he says it twice in those verses, 11 to 13, he said, then you need to yield. You've got that power within you. You should yield, and your members should no longer be instruments of sin. Your heart's been changed, and now you should be a vessel, an instrument. These members, your hands, your eyes, your feet, your body should be a vessel and an instrument of righteousness and holiness. That's what he's saying. Don't yield your physical body as an instrument or a tool for the devil, but as a tool for God. And so our hands represent what? They represent what we do. Our feet represent what? They represent where we go. And our eyes represent what we see, what we watch. And so sin takes on physical characteristics, doesn't it? That's what we learn about in the Bible. And he's saying holiness, Jesus is saying holiness is a physical act. 
what you're watching, what you're holding, where you're going. So the application we need to make to ourselves on the basis of that, for instance, is what are you watching on TV? What are you watching when you watch movies, if you watch movies? So do we think that what we use, our instruments, our eyes, our hands, our feet, what we use our body for, the things we watch, doesn't have an effect on the rest of our spiritual life? Because you watch the wrong kind of movies. You watch R-rated movies. I mean, they have done scientific studies on this. It's just not a matter of opinion. It's a physical fact. You watch the wrong kind of movies and the wrong kind of things, and it affects you. You can't get away from it. And that's what he's saying here, isn't it? And it's the same with all the attitudes, the worldly attitudes, the language, the off-color jokes. It's a spiritual work that gets done on you through all that. And you're yielding your body to what? There's spirits at work through the media, through those things you do. And that happens by what you watch and where you go and what you do. So what's Jesus saying here? He says we have desires and passions in our flesh and they need to be crucified and we're commanded to do what because we got a fire getting ready to start there if we're not careful don't we you got to watch what you feed it and so what does the bible say what does it say you do with temptation see how close you can get to it what does it say flee i believe it says flee temptation you don't want to be pouring oil on the fire so to speak you don't and we're told what to make no provision for the flesh. Amen? Like I said, might not be your favorite verse. Might not sell very many of the tapes, but it's still critical, isn't it? We'll see in a minute. So how do we deal with sin? What's Jesus saying here? He's saying you have got to deal with sin in your life by what? Showing it no mercy. Isn't that what he's saying? Because our flesh and sin in our life, it will beg and plead for mercy like Agag did, didn't he? He's supposed to be acting pieces. That's what Saul's supposed to do to him. And he's like, oh, hasn't the sentence of death gone past? And sometimes sin talks to you like that, doesn't it? Oh, you're saved and you're under the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't really have to deal that harshly with me. Mm-mm, you better. Samuel said, give me that sword. And it said he hacked Agag to pieces. And because Saul didn't, that was his downfall, wasn't it? Oh, that's the beginning and the end for that guy. It's that serious. Because sin, if we show it mercy, you know what it's like? It's like gangrene. During the Civil War, those bullets that go through those long rifles, they just they were a mess. And they'd hit those guys' arms, shatter their bone, and because of the dirt and the filth or whatever, they'd get gangrened arms and legs. And guess what? Those guys, don't, that's the last thing you want to do is have your arm and leg. These guys were young men. A lot of them were farmers. They got young wives. They don't want to go home missing an arm or a leg. It's the last thing you want to do. But when they tell you either the arm goes off or you are dead, all of a sudden it becomes a little more desirable to get rid of that arm or that leg because they don't want to be dead. That's the strongest motivation in a man, that will to live. It's like, if that's what you got to do, then I'll go home this way. That's the way it's going to be. And so Jesus is saying, don't you people listening to me, disciples, don't you want to live forever? He said, then you need to crucify your flesh. You need to crucify those desires that are going to drag you down. We studied Romans 8, and that's exactly what it says. Romans 8, 13. It says, for if you live after the flesh, what does it say will happen? What Jesus says, you shall die. 
Romans 8.13. If you live after the flesh, you shall die. But, he says, if you through the Spirit do mortify, kill. He doesn't say kill your heart, does he? He says if you will mortify the deeds of the body. Now what it says? He says you do that, he says you shall live. So why didn't he say, why don't you crucify your heart? Because the heart is expressed through the body, isn't it? And you have to determine, I'm like Job. Here's the simple way, if you want to deal with lust, you can read all the books you want to, but I think Job 31.1 gives the complete answer, and Jesus does too on the Sermon on the Mount. Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes that I would not behold a maid or a young woman. That's as simple as all you need to do. I remember when Joel, my brother, was going to quit smoking. You know, they had all these programs to taper you off and all that other. The most effective one is called cold turkey. You're just, you're done with it. You're not trying to taper off from three packs a day down to two, down to one. The best thing to do is you just, you're done with it. And I'm saying, you want to know how to get delivered of pornography? You make a covenant with your eyes and read the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says you persist in that sin and you will perish in hell. That's the motivation he gives there. And believe me, I'm telling you, it works. <laughs> if you'll do that, young person, it will work. Turn over to Colossians 3, if you would. Look what it says here in Colossians. It's all through the New Testament. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. And here it starts off with mortify or crucify, therefore what? Again, members. Your hands, your feet, your eyes. Crucify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. And he says, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. Look what he says in verse 6. For which things sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience, in the which you walked sometime in the past when you lived in them. He says, but now, today, in the present time, he says, you also put off all these anger, wrath malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. And so verse 6 is telling us the same thing Jesus is saying. He's saying either you crucify these things in your flesh, because he's saying if you don't, he's saying God's wrath because the world doesn't crucify any of that stuff. They give in to their fornication, their lust, their anger, their malice, all of those things. They don't hold back their covetousness, their greed. And he's saying for that reason, because these people live according to the flesh, he says God's wrath is coming on them. And listen, God is a God of justice. If we're living like the world, how can he justly send them to hell, send his wrath on them, and somehow excuse us? He can't. That's not the way it works. And that's what Paul's saying there. So the question is, how do we deal with sin? Let me ask you this question. Who's the one responsible for doing the chopping? Cutting off, plucking out the eye. Who's the one responsible for that? We are, aren't we? Jesus says, if your hand offends you, you cut it off. If your foot offends you, you cut it off. If your eye offends you, you pluck it out. We have to be the ones doing the chopping, the cutting, and the gouging. Because here's the thing we need to understand. 
God is not going to do it for us, is he? Let's go back to Mark. I think that's what it says. Verse 43, if thy hand offend thee, it's understood, you cut it off. So there's this teaching out that's popular, let go and let God. It's not scriptural. Oh, we have to be the ones doing the chopping. How do we do it, though? Do we do it in our own strength? Mm Mm-mm. We do it, but we do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we read in Romans 8. If you, through the Spirit, he says, do crucify the deeds of the body, then he says you shall live. So we do. We can only live the crucified life. How? We've been taught all this. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. You're not going to overcome lust through your own willpower and in your flesh and by saying, I'm not going, or or fear or anger or any of that. You're not going to overcome it in your own strength and by your own willpower. It's got to be by the Holy Spirit, and that's why it's so important to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Critical. It's not a matter of salvation, but it is as far as walking with the Lord, like where he asked us to do, living the Sermon on the Mount. So John Owen said this, he says, here's how he said we should deal with sin. He says, we're to put our hands on the throat of sin and not let go until it's choked dead. Well, I thought that was a good way of putting that old John Owen. I could sit here and give all this application, but it's going to be different what needs to happen because it can be things that are unlawful, like fornication and lust and anger. It can be those. But he can also be talking about things that are lawful. You can have too much of a good thing in your life. To sit here and say, well, no, you should never go fishing. You shouldn't. You know, I mean, you can't do that, but you can do too much fishing or whatever your hobby is to where it's getting in the way of your walk with the Lord, Right. So it's different for every person. And I'm just saying, the Holy Spirit will speak to you. You know, I'm telling you, if you're honest with yourself right now, you know how he's saying and what he's telling you, you need to get rid of to keep walking with me. Because that's the way it works for me. (laughs) I don't think I'm some freak. I might be a freak, but I think that's the way God works. So God's speaking to you personally about what you need to pluck out, what you need to cut off. So it's whatever is going to keep you from obeying the will of God. It has got to go. And we read not too many chapters back, Herod. Herod was rebuked by John for his sin. He said, it is unlawful. What you're doing is not right. Living with your brother's wife, your brother Philip's right. And you know what? It says in the Bible that Herod knew what John told him was the truth and that John was right. It says this, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and a holy man, and he protected him. But you know what Herod's problem was? He wasn't willing to cut off his right hand of pride because he loved the praise of men and of his wife, and he wasn't willing to gouge out his eye of lust, and so he's lusting after his wife's daughter, and it got him in a bind. Herod did not view the kingdom of God and eternal life as more valuable than the pleasures of earth. And that's what Jesus says we need to do. He couldn't. He didn't want to. He didn't cut off his hand, gouge out his eye. Instead, what did he do? He cut off the head of the one that loved him enough to tell him the truth. Cutting off the wrong thing, wasn't he? Cut off John's head. And I bet you Herod's been in hell for how long? I wonder if he'd tell you that was all worth it. You know, you think about that. And that's the seriousness of what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying. It doesn't matter what I'm saying. Listen to what he's saying. Those are his words. I didn't write any of this. I really didn't. 
Whatever keeps you from obeying the will of God needs to go. Samson, he knew the law. He knew it wasn't right for him to be chasing these Philistine women, women from other nations. But it says this in Judges 14, it says Samson went down to Timnath and it says he saw a woman of the daughters of the Philistines. And he goes home and tells his parents, he says, I have seen with my eyes something. I've seen a woman of Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines and therefore I want you to get her for me for my wife is what Samson told him. And his parents, they knew God's law too, and they're trying to talk him out of it. Like, Samson, can't you find a cute Jewish girl? And please just marry her. Why do you have to go, they told him, to one of these uncircumcised Philistine women? And he didn't want to hear that. He says, get her for me. And you know what he said? For she pleases me well. And this guy is dedicated to God. I'm going to ignore his law, and this is what I want. I want her, because my eye is seeing her, and she pleases me well. That's the, the beginning when it talks about Samson. And things went that way for him from there on out, didn't they? Went downhill. And so when we ignore God's will and say, I'm going to do what I want to do, I'm going to watch what I want to watch, I'm going to go where I want to go, do what I want to do, because it pleases me Jesus is pleading with us here. He says, don't do that. Cut that off. Cut that attitude off. Cut those desires off. Deal with it ruthlessly because he says, if you don't kill sin, it will kill you. And Samson wouldn't control his eyes. And you know what? Things seemed like they were going fine for him for a while, didn't they? Until he met Delilah. And his consecration to God through her was gone, wasn't it? gone. And so was his power. And the sad thing was, he didn't even know it. Said he didn't realize that all his power was gone. So the Philistines did for Samson what he should have done for himself. And you know what that was? They put out both of his eyes. And he was put in chains and it says that he did grind in the prison house. And that's what sin will do to you. That's where it'll take you. But here's one thing we need to see. God had put stop signs in Samson's way, hadn't he? Because every Philistine woman, they're trying to mess with his consecration that he got involved with, and he wouldn't listen. And he's thinking, oh, I got up and do what I did before and all that. They don't know my secret. Ran every stop sign that God put in his way in his mercy until finally he ran one too many, didn't he? And had a head-on crash with Delilah. And that was the end of it. God puts stop signs in our paths, doesn't he? He speaks to us about different things along the way, and we cannot afford to ignore them. He does, doesn't he? He's got ways he'll speak through his word, he'll speak through your Bible reading, he'll speak through other believers, and something in your heart saying, man, what they're telling me is right, I need to deal with that. Deal with it then. That's what Jesus is saying here. So he says, when you hear things about gossip, about criticism, anger, lust, doubt, and unbelief, he says, you need to deal with it. Are you going to deal with that? Because I think, this was pointed to my attention, we got a problem with criticism within our church. Attitudes, criticism, we need to deal with that, talking about things. Amen? So we've talked about gossip, criticism. Brother Hamilton said it's a plague he thought would never go away. Well, Jesus is saying right here, we better have a goal ready for each of us individually 
or it'll be our downfall. Turn over to Psalm 50. And we'll see, this is one of the more powerful psalms, I think. Psalm 50, beginning in verse 14. Psalm 50, 14, it says, Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High and call upon me, God says, in the day of trouble. He says, I'll deliver thee and you will glorify me. But unto the wicked, saith God, what have you to declare my statutes? Or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? When you saw a thief, then thou consentest with him, and you have been a partakers with adulterers. You give us thy mouth to evil, and thy tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against thy brother, Selah. You slander thine own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silence. And you thought that I was altogether such a one as thyself, he says, but I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes. And he says, now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me, and to him that orders his conduct, his conversation aright, he says, him, I will show the salvation of God. Now, that's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? It's serious. And that's what the Lord's saying there. That's what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 50. We think because we say things about people, about situations, about whatever, and lightning doesn't hit us from heaven, that somehow God is co-signing what we're doing. And he's saying, no, I'm not. And you need to get things in order. And that's what Jesus is saying, isn't he? Saying, cut it out. Now, he didn't put your tongue in there, but I think he very well could have. So I heard a report one time about somebody trying to get into problems here. I'm not going to get into that. I'm not going to get into all this criticism that's going around. I had a lot of respect for when I heard that. That takes some backbone. It was a younger person telling an older person that. And sometimes that's what you have to do. Sometimes you need to just hear a backbiting tongue and say, I'm not going to be partakers of that. Instead of thinking you somehow have to be the nice person and get involved in it. Because a spirit comes in and it causes problems, divisions, and disunity in a church. Amen? There's proper ways and proper channels of handling things. Amen. So we'll go back to Mark chapter 9. So we're going to deal with the third thing here, and that is why should we deal with sin? back in Mark chapter 9. And so what we have here is Jesus is trying to tell us that the kingdom of God is of indescribable value or worth. It's worth, he's saying, whatever you have to do to receive it, whatever you have to give up to get the kingdom of God, he's saying, you need to do that. It's indescribable. And so he's saying there in verse 43, if your hand offend you, it is better for you to enter into life maimed than to go into hell, and on and on, verse 45, verse 47. It's better. I mean, that is probably the biggest understatement ever made. It is better. <laughs> if you think about it, it's better. What's he really doing here? He's contrasting two times. He says it's better to enter into life, and he's talking about eternal life. The third time he says, I'm talking about the kingdom of God. It's better to enter into that disfigured, losing whatever it is you think is so great that you have to have than going to hell. And he spends all his time describing what hell is like. And I'm telling you, 
You can't think seriously long about hell and not be upset. (laughs) Whether you think about, man, what if I ended up there? Or what if a person I know? Or what if someone I know is there? It is upsetting to me. It's horrendous, terrifying, right? But Jesus describes it to us so we'll avoid it and pray for others that they'll never make it there. Because what does he say? What do we know about hell? It's a place of punishment. Look what it says in verse 48. He says, where their worm dieth not. And he says, the fire is not quenched. And so there's a lot of groups now. They're teaching, oh, no, God couldn't do that. He's a God of love. And they'll teach everything from annihilation to ultimate reconciliation. That's coming back. That's been around forever. Uh, That's not what the Bible teaches. It's conscious torment is what hell is. It's punishment. Revelation 20.10 says, And the devil that deceived them was cast, thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And it says this, And they shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's Revelation 20.10. It goes on to say a little further down, the ones that followed them, it says Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was also cast into the lake of fire. Terrible. Hell is described by Jesus as a place of separation. He says to be cast into outer darkness. Well, we got caves around here all over. Have you ever been to a cave? We went to that one in Kentucky down under. Get in that cave and they turn the lights out. And I mean, it's blackness that can be felt. You can't see your hand that close in front of your face. And he's saying that's what hell's going to be like. Terrible. Because you think about it. When you see people and you're around people, your relatives and your friends, that's kind of your identity, isn't it? And when you're down there, you'll see no one. That's terrible. Outer darkness forever. Cut off from fellowship of any kind. Conscience of past and present sin. And that's when it says there, where their worm dieth not. So you're going to know, you're going to be conscious of all the things you did in the past, all the times you could have repented, all the times God tried to speak to you about get your life right with me and didn't do it. Like I said, you're going to see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and you yourselves cast out. That's terrible. But you're also, you're going to live with sin with no deliverance and no way to express it. For eternity. Never having your desires filled because there is no grace. Grace is over in the eternal state. And that punishment is eternal. After millions and millions of years there, there is no end in sight. Utter hopelessness. And you know it. I mean, the worst sinner here, at at least, not in this room, I'm saying in the world, they at least have some hope. And some people, they live in the hope that one day I'll repent, but they still have that hope, whether it's false or not. But in hell, there is no hope, an unbearable load to bear. Jesus said this in Matthew 25, 46, when he talks about those that gave water, that fed, that clothed, that visited in prison, that came when I was sick, and those that didn't. And here's what he says at the very end of all that, Matthew 25, 46. And he says, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous unto life eternal. And so what's he doing? He's painting a picture. He's saying, you don't want to go to this place. 
Whatever you have to do to avoid that, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. Isn't that what he's saying? As you think about it, what are the three strongest passions and emotions that men have? Fear, anger, and lust. And all three of those, how does he say you overcome those sins? Lust in Matthew 5. He puts the torment of hell there as the, the cure to that, doesn't he? In Matthew chapter 10, he says, don't fear them. That after they've killed your body, that's all they can do. He says, no, don't fear those men. Fear him who after he's killed your body has the power to cast you into hell. That's how it works. And anger is, we're back on a Sermon on the Mount on that too. You have heard that it was said, thou shalt not kill. But whosoever is angry with his brother, you call somebody an idiot because they cut in front of you and you let him have it. He says, you're in danger of hell fire. You better curb that. So are we smarter than him? That we're going to say, no, you don't need to use fear like that. Well, that's what he did. That's the motivation he gave. So he's describing hell here. Jesus does throughout the New Testament, not because he's glad to send anybody there. He's pleading with us. Cut. Do radical surgery. Gouge. Gouge your eye out. Cast it from you. Cut your foot off. Don't go there. Don't go to that place. It's not worth it. That's what he's saying here through this. Pleading. So a few years ago, London, this has happened several times there, they had fog. This is why I understand the story on a major highway. You couldn't hardly see what was coming in front of you. They had flashing lights and warning signs that were flashing to motorists to slow down, stop. And these people were just never stopping and driving straight on through that. And they're running in. You see pictures of it. It's crazy. Multiple car pileups. Bam, bam, where they're just running into these cars. They couldn't see them. They're stacked up. They're ignoring the warning signs. Policemen came there. They're so frustrated that these people, they literally started picking up cones and started throwing them at the cars to try to get their attention. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's throwing this at us. Listen to me. He's saying, cut it off, cut it out, gouge it out. He's trying to get our attention. You don't want to go to this place. Whatever price you have to pay. It's going to be worth paying. He's throwing cones at it. Get rid of sin. And isn't that what it says all through the New Testament? Pursue peace in Hebrews 12 with all people and pursue holiness. It says without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue, it says, seek after, strive for holiness. Why? Without which no one shall see the Lord, is what the Bible says. 1 Timothy 2.22 says, flee youthful lust, but pursue, it's the same word, righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Flee youthful lust. Get away from them. Cut them off. 1 Timothy 3.10-11 says, he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And so the Bible tells us from cover to cover that evil is heading after us and we're to run the opposite direction, pursuing holiness and righteousness without stretched arms. That's what we're supposed to be doing, going after it. So look down here, we'll look at these last two verses, verses 49 to 50. 
It says, for everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. He says, salt is good, but the salt has lost its saltiness. Wherewith will you season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace one with another. And so he's saying, we're to be the salt of the earth. Didn't Jesus say that? A preserving influence. And the only way we're going to do that is to endure the fiery trials that God sends us. We're his living sacrifices, and he's going to salt us with salt. That's what happened in the book of Leviticus. Every sacrifice was salted with salt. That's what it's saying. And how does he salt us? Through our trials, our fiery trials. And what does that do? What do those fiery trials do? They should produce holiness in us. And I'm telling you, you get in the trial, and it'll humble you. It'll kill pride in you. And that's what he's after. And so then... When that happens, like the disciples who were arguing on the road, who was going to be the greatest? And they had to deal with their eyes and their hands of pride, didn't they? Cut them off. Because when that happened, then we have what happens there at the end of verse 50. He says, then you'll have what? You won't be arguing about who's the greatest anymore, will you? You'll have peace, he's saying, one with another. I would just end by saying, let's not frustrate the grace of God in our lives because Jesus bore the punishment, what our hands, our eyes, and our feet have done. Oh man, am I so glad for that. I didn't have any of that cut off for 21 years of my life. And there's been a lot I've had to cut off since then. So let's be done with sin. That's what he's saying, isn't that what these verses are telling us? And pursue our holy calling. And I'm gonna end with this. This is what 1 Peter 1 says. 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1. he says, Therefore, Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And that's what God wants us to be, a holy people. Amen. And all will be well. Amen. And that's a work in progress. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you'll impress on all of our hearts, Lord, give us the grace and the power of your spirit to deal with whatever sins in our lives you're dealing with us on now that we can progress in holiness and in righteousness, Lord, and our consecration can be where it needs to be, Lord, so that we can exercise faith in you for the promises that you've given us, Lord. And when trials come our way, whether with ourselves or with our children, we'll have the confidence that whatsoever we ask from you, we can receive. And we just want to know, Lord, that we're walking pleasing in your sight. And we do that by dealing with sin and growing in holiness, which is what we just read out of 1 Peter 1. And I ask that you'll impress the importance of this message, your words, the words you spoke through the Lord Jesus Christ on earth, that you'll impress those on all of our hearts. And I just ask you to do that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.